Chinese leaders go on the offensive against the U.S., claiming Washington is trying to contain Beijing and slow down Chinese development. It's Tuesday, March 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the national implications of the new Republican majority in Florida's legislature. It's gearing up to pass a lot of conservative laws. Plus, U.S. diplomats are working to find four Americans kidnapped in Mexico. Also this hour, the tight real estate market nationwide has retirees and people in their 30s all trying to buy the same kinds of homes. I'm going up against people who have had 20, 30, 40 years of professional experience and life savings and retirement savings. And we hear from a woman with sickle cell disease getting an experimental treatment created here in the Boston area. In sports, the Celtics lose. Increasing clouds today and windy near 40. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell begins two days of testimony on Capitol Hill this morning. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Fed chair will offer a progress report on the fight against inflation. The last time Fed policymakers met in early February, it looked as if they were making pretty good headway in their effort to curb inflation. Prices weren't climbing as fast, shoppers seemed to be getting more cautious, and the very hot job market appeared to be losing steam. No one on the Fed board was saying mission accomplished, but it looked like interest rates were having the desired effect. In the five weeks since that meeting, though, government data has painted a very different picture. The job market looks tighter, spending's more robust, and inflation's proving to be more stubborn. As a result, some Fed officials now think interest rates will have to go up higher and stay up longer. Both investors and lawmakers will be listening closely for any clues the Fed chairman might offer today. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has made an unannounced visit to Baghdad. His visit to Iraq comes a few days before the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of that country and the toppling of dictator Saddam Hussein. The military action led to years of U.S. control of Iraq and the rise of sectarian tensions. That also included the rise of ISIS. Secretary Austin referred to the Allies' actions against ISIS, also known as Daesh. Through the global coalition to defeat Daesh, we liberated more than 50,000 square kilometers from Daesh. And we freed more than 4.5 million Iraqis from their cruel grip. Austin says U.S. forces are prepared to stay in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government. He says they're in an advisory role. Railroad Norfolk Southern says it will pay for residents to move away from the East Palestine, Ohio area during its cleanup effort. A train carrying toxic chemicals derailed there just over a month ago. From member station WESA, Oliver Morrison reports eligible residents must live within a mile of the accident site. Oda Sponsel lives in East Palestine. She says Norfolk Southern offered to pay her $500 per week to move away while it digs up contaminated soil. Sponsel told them $500 would not be enough for a hotel that would allow her to keep her dogs with her. And the company, she says, agreed to pay her a little more. Sponsel feels better that she can afford to move away now and doesn't have to worry about her health. But then I'm also feeling sad that I have to leave my house. Some residents say they live farther than a mile from the derailment site, but are also concerned about health problems. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison. Northern and eastern California are still under winter storm warnings. Another couple of feet of snow are expected in the mountains, while only a few inches may fall in lower elevations. The National Weather Service is warning a new storm is coming that could deluge central California and trigger flash flooding. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is warning people not to eat fish caught in 13 state parks. That includes Walden Pond and Concord. It's all because testing found PFAS chemicals in some fish. WBOR's Gabriella Emanuel reports. PFAS chemicals are widely used in consumer products, but some are linked to health concerns like kidney cancer and thyroid problems. The chemicals can accumulate in fish that live in contaminated water. In the new advisories, state officials recommend limiting consumption of some fish and avoiding others. We've been waiting for this. Wendy Heiger-Bernays studies PFAS at Boston University School of Public Health. We need to do some real serious soul-searching We've got to stop the use of these chemicals. State testing found swimming is still safe in these ponds, lakes, and reservoirs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. The state auditor's office will investigate allegations of discrimination within the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority. In the past month, four black employees filed formal complaints with the state attorney general's office. They say the uh, the authority paid them less than their white counterparts. A white employee says he was fired after filing a separate complaint. He claims the authority heightened security at black-sponsored events. The Boston City Council plans to take up Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control plan as soon as tomorrow. The policy would restrict rent increases with some exceptions. It needs approval from the city council, state lawmakers, and the governor to become law. Councilor Ricardo Arroyo tells the Boston Herald the council also wants to vote tomorrow on the future of the Boston Planning and Development Agency. Participating in tackle football is now linked to damage of part of the brain that deals with memory, mobility, and balance. That new finding is from the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Researchers there looked at the brains of more than 200 football players. They found that people who played more football had more damage to what's called the white matter of the brain. Professor Michael Alasco worked on the research. We also found that the younger that individuals started to play American football was also associated with more injury to the white matter parts of the brain. Alasco suggests children play flag football rather than tackle football to minimize potential damage. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. The Celtics lost to the Cavaliers 118-114 to last night in Cleveland. The Seas are off tonight. They'll host the Portland Trailblazers tomorrow. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll be windy and in the upper 30s. Cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Cloudy again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. 
Today, Florida's legislature begins a new session, and people are watching in part because of whose agenda they are following. Governor Ron DeSantis has a Republican supermajority. Its members have largely followed his priorities in the past, and they plan to do it again. So how could they influence Florida and the country? WFSU's Lynn Hatter is covering the story from Tallahassee, the state capital. Hey there, Lynn. Hey, thanks for having me. What makes this session all about DeSantis? Well, he is a rumored presidential contender, and he's consolidated power here to the degree that even if some Republicans may disagree with him privately, they're not going to say that publicly. Hmm. And we're seeing a lot of bills that align with what the governor has said is his priority, which is combating what he sees as a, quote, woke ideology in public education and in government. How do lawmakers plan to do that? Well, they have a bill that would further limit what teachers can say in schools. It would expand the state's prohibition on discussing gender and teaching sexual identity from the third grade to the eighth grade, but it also forbids schools from using names and pronouns other than the ones assigned to a child at birth. We're also watching a bill related to public colleges and universities that would ban any major or minor in gender studies, intersectionality, and critical race theory. The bill also bans DEI programs, except those that may be required by the federal government or ones that are meant for specific groups like military vets. Mm. Intersectionality is the idea that some people face discrimination in different ways, like Black women. And diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's the name a lot of companies give to their efforts to include different kinds of people. So this bill would basically block all of that. And of course, uh, strike out at a lot of uh, buzzwords that conservatives will use uh, and criticize. Isn't the legislature also promoting private schools? Yes. Now, Florida already lets some people use public money to pay for private school. And now the state is about to remove the income caps from those programs. And this would let every child in the state qualify for a private school scholarship or an education savings account that the family can use on related expenses. What else does the governor want from the legislature? Well, Governor DeSantis says he's okay with open carry, which would allow people to openly walk around with firearms. We're also watching a lot of bills that deal with journalism, the media, and free speech. One of those would presume that anything attributed to an anonymous source is false, and it lowers the threshold for who is considered a public figure. It would also make it easy for traditional public figures like politicians to sue journalists for defamation. The other bill would require anyone who writes about a state official and gets paid to do so to have to file with the state. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You'd have to register with the government before you could exercise your First Amendment right? Yes. Now, that bill exempts journalists and traditional media outlets, and it's basically meant for certain types of bloggers. Um, As for whether it could pass, the sponsor is very insistent, but this one appears to have a lot less support than that first bill that targets traditional media. Lynn Hatter of WFSU in Tallahassee, thanks for the update. Thank you. Now, yesterday on this program, commentator Jonah Goldberg told us what a lot of Republicans are thinking. They would like to use government power to impose their idea of traditional values, and they justify this by saying that the left will use that power if they do not. So how does Larry Hogan see all of this? He is a Republican who won in a blue state serving two terms as governor of Maryland, but he said last weekend he will not run for president in 2024. Governor, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Steve. Good morning. Uh, good morning. I know you dropped away there briefly, so I'll just note what we said, that a lot of Republicans seem to be trying to use government to impose traditional values. Has the Republican Party abandoned the idea of limited government? Well, you know, that's I, I, put, I did an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of days ago saying that I uh, was dropping out of the race and that I, I wanted to see the Republican Party return to a more traditional Republican Party, which was all about you know, smaller government. And, uh, but that's not uh, what we're seeing from a lot of the other folks that are out there. There's a big focus on, uh, on social issues and in some cases, uh, the government getting more aggressive. And am I phrasing it correctly the way that you see it, that, that people believe that they are going to use government power to impose traditional values? Well, I mean, that's certainly what some of the people on the right in the Republican Party are talking about. And it, it, uh, it's, it seems to be playing with a certain segment of the of the primary base. Now, I'm not sure whether it's a winning message uh, for a, uh, <clears throat> a nominee or for a general election, but it is playing well at this point in time with certain groups. Oh, well, let's talk about that. There's the Republican base, as they say, and there's the general election crowd. But let's talk first about the Republican base or even the majority in some red states. We just heard what's going on in Florida. One of the proposals is to ban DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, as a layman, I understand stopping a DEI program if you establish that they're doing something wrong. But from this distance, the bill would seem to ban doing DEI at all. Do that many of your fellow Republicans really think there should just be no effort at diversity at all? Well, I'm not sure how many people would feel that way. And, um, and I, I don't know the details of the, uh, the bill in Florida that you're talking about. I did spend a little time in Tallahassee, but that was back in college. And so I, <laughs> I'm not following the ins and outs of, uh, of what they're talking about down there. But uh, look, I, uh, you know, one of the things that I was concerned about was that the party uh, was focusing on uh, things that were not what the average person was focusing about. And it's why we have continually been uh, losing elections of late, and it should have been a, a big election year in, uh, in the race last year. We lost races all across the country. Everybody who was kind of spouting, uh, you know, talking about the, the uh, stolen election or the viruses being fake, uh, or, you know, talking about January 6th and not talking about things like the economy and crime and education, uh, most of them all lost. And the people who won were uh, common sense conservative Republicans or more traditional Republicans that were focused on pocketbook issues and the things that the average person wanted to hear about. But no question, these things, um, you know, get a lot of attention on conservative media. And uh, and that's why you, know, you have some people talking about them nonstop. Well, uh, there are a lot of Republicans who would like to think that Governor DeSantis is better than Donald Trump, that he would be less divisive in the way that Trump is or less distracting in the way that Trump is, but would be effective in pushing a certain agenda. Do you think he's any better than Trump? Well, I mean, I think time will tell. At this point in time, he's a, you know, he's a, a first-term governor that just got reelected. Uh, he's uh, out there talking about a lot of things. He's currently not a candidate for president. Um, and we've got a long way to go. It's well, let's just talk about let's just talk about if I can. Primary, that, so. But forgive me. Let's just talk yeah. about the DeSantis approach. Then, if you're going to say I'm going to make my yeah. name by focusing on culture war issues, is that a winning way to be a Republican presidential candidate who can win the next general election? Well, I, I'm not sure it is. I think it's potentially a way to uh, win a primary that's divided with a lot of folks in it. 
uh, win a plurality of votes, but I don't think it's a way to win a general election. And, you know, I'm, I'm a proof of that. I'm the complete opposite of that style. I won uh, in the bluest state in America and was the only the second Republican reelected in the entire 248-year history of our state. And I ran 45 points ahead of Donald Trump by winning over swing voters and independents and suburban women and black voters and Asians and Hispanics. And if the Republican Party wants to get back to winning again so that they can govern, uh, then they're going to have to have an, uh, a message that appeals to a wider uh, group of people. And I think uh, kind of doubling down on uh, the, the rhetoric to, uh, you know, to, just to appeal to the base, you know, may backfire in a general election. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Steve. Speed skating is a sport largely forgotten in this country when it's not an Olympic year. The next Winter Games are still three years away, but if American Jordan Stoles keeps doing what he did this past weekend, he could pull speed skating out of the shadows. The 18-year-old stunned the sports world with a historic performance at a world championship event in the Netherlands. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. Jordan Stoles hardly comes off as an impertinent teenager. He seems very calm and understated, true to his small town Wisconsin roots. But it was incredibly brash of him to step onto the ice at Tielf Oval in the Netherlands, think the Yankee Stadium of speed skating, and dominate the way he did. It started Friday night in the men's 500 meter race at the World's Single Distance Championships. Hooray! Stoles won, the youngest ever 500-meter champ in the event's nearly 30-year history. It also made him the first to win junior and senior world titles in the same season since the famous U.S. speed skating brother and sister Eric and Beth Hyden both did it in the late 1970s. And there was more at Tealf. Stoles won the 1,000 and 1,500-meter races too. The first man, a very young man, to win three individual world gold medals at the single distance event. Orange-clad Dutch fans watched in amazement. One competitor called Stoles otherworldly. 2006 Olympic speed skating gold medalist Joey Cheek says three things make Stoles so good, starting with a technical proficiency Cheek calls astounding. The things that he does well typically take people an entire career of micro-adjustments to get there. Things such as how he pushes hard against the ice with no wasted motion, no misses on his push. Second, Cheek says Stoles has incredible top speed and finish. He won the 500 at the World Championships, and he had the fastest last lap in the 1500. It's unheard of to have both of those. Third, and Cheek says this is more observation than something measurable, Stoles seems unshaken by his sudden success. He grew up skating on frozen lakes and ponds in Wisconsin. His mom says the first time he went out, he fell over and over and complained the ice was too slippery. Now when he goes on the ice, the expectation is that Jordan Stoles will stand, taller than everyone, on the elevated top spot of the victory platform. Tom Goldman, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the first sickle cell patient treated with gene-editing CRISPR technology developed in part here in the Boston region. And in 20 minutes, there's a reckoning happening inside Fox News spurred by a $1.6 billion defamation case. It's 719. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys. But Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. ClimateInteractive.org and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. Increasingly cloudy today with a high near 40. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, still cloudy, still windy, and we'll have a low around 29. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and windy with a high near 42. It's 33 degrees in Boston. Coming to WBUR City Space later this month, a conversation with NPR's Ari Shapiro. He'll be joined by our All Things Considered host, Lisa Mullins, to talk about his new book. It's called The Best Strangers in the World, and it's about his story journalism career. Join us in person or virtually on March 26th. People who attend in person will get a signed copy of the book. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at aecf.org. And from EBSCO, offering clinical decision support, resources, and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Some of the world's most celebrated experts on genetic engineering are in London this week to debate the promise and the peril of gene editing. Yesterday, the summit put the spotlight on one person, Victoria Gray. The Mississippi woman was the first person with sickle cell disease to be treated with a gene editing technique known as CRISPR. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein had exclusive access to Chronicle Gray's experience. Here he is with her in London. When I first met Victoria almost four years ago, she was lying in a hospital bed in Nashville, so weak she could barely get out of bed. She'd been tormented by the devastating blood disorder her whole life and had just gone through a grueling procedure to have billions of her own bone marrow cells genetically modified and infused back into her body. When we meet at her hotel in London on Sunday, Victoria looks like a different person. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm great. That's great. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you, too. She had just arrived in London with her husband Earl from her hometown in Mississippi, her first trip outside the U.S. ever. And even though she didn't sleep much on the overnight flight, she can't wait to see the sights. You ready for this, Victoria? Yes, I am. Sure. I'm excited. Okay. Yes, I'm sure. Here we go. 
Before the treatment, deformed red blood cells would incapacitate her with horrible, unpredictable attacks of pain, sending her rushing to the hospital for pain medication and blood transfusions. She could barely get out of bed many days, struggle to care for her four children, keep a job. Today, at 37, all of her symptoms have disappeared. She works full-time as a Walmart cashier, keeps up with her teenagers, so she thought she could handle exploring the city. We head out to find the British Museum. I would have never been able to walk this long before. How much of a difference is it? It's a huge difference, like night and day. I can't imagine having lived a whole life in one way and then having suddenly be so much better. Yes, especially when you have a disease that they say was incurable. So I'm here now, feel like I got a second chance. We finally make it to the museum. Victoria's not thrilled by the mummies, but I find her studying a small wooden artifact hanging on the wall. It's nice seeing all the old artifacts, and especially the cross. Why especially the crosses? Because religion is something that I hold close to my heart. My faith is what brought me this far. And God did his part, you know, for what I prayed about for years. And together, hand-in-hand, God and science work for me. Next stop is the London Eye, a huge Ferris wheel that towers over the city. Victoria's keen for a ride, even though she's afraid of heights. We've been exploring for hours. We climb on board and circle to the top. How are you feeling, Victoria? I still feel good. What do you think of this view? Oh, it's a beautiful view. So that looks like Big Ben right there. You see it? Yes. Did you ever think you'd be able to get a view like this? No, I didn't. Part of my dream's coming true. As we circle back down, I ask Victoria how she's feeling about addressing the International Gene Editing Summit the next day. I'm very excited. A little nervous, honestly, speaking in front of a large crowd. So what do you think will be more more nerve-wracking, doing the London Eye or speaking at the summit? Speaking at the summit, of course. (laughs) Okay, our flight is almost over. So please make sure you take everything with you when you leave. The next morning, Victoria makes her way through the crowd at the summit and finds a seat in the auditorium as Robin Lovell Badge opens the three-day meeting at the Francis Crick Institute. Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to see so many people here. So welcome to the third summit on human genome editing. Speaker after speaker described the latest scientific advances in gene editing. David Liu from Harvard sounded a bit echoey because he addressed the summit remotely. There are more than 200 patients to date, including uh, Victoria, Patrick, and Carlene pictured here, that have been treated in clinical trials with CRISPR nucleases targeting DNA sequences that, when disrupted, offer clinical benefit. You'll hear more from Victoria about her experience directly later today. Finally, it's Victoria's turn on the podium. Good evening. I'm Victoria Gray, and I'm a 37-year-old mother of four and a sickle cell survivor. Take a moment to go on a journey with me. For 10 minutes, Victoria repeatedly chokes back tears as she describes her life with sickle cell, including one especially torturous pain crisis. During this hospital stay, with a ketamine infusion in one arm and a Dilaudid infusion in the next, but still no pain relief, I called all the doctors into the room 
and I told him that I could no longer live like this. I went home and I continued to pray and look to God for, for answers. And how she finally received the CRISPR gene-edited cells, supercells she calls them, as part of a study. The life that I once felt like I was only existing in, I am now thriving in. I stand here before you today as proof that miracles still happen and that God and science can coexist. Thank you for allowing me to share my story with you. As Victoria walks off the stage, the audience of scientists, doctors, bioethicists, and others gives her a standing ovation. Vertex Pharmaceuticals and CRISPR Therapeutics, which sponsored the study Victoria volunteered for, are asking the Food and Drug Administration to approve the treatment. That would make it the first gene editing therapy to become widely available. But for the rest of the afternoon, speakers warned that there are still big questions about all this. How many patients will it help? How long will it last? The treatment is complicated and is expected to be really expensive, possibly costing millions of dollars. Will it be available to the patients who need it most, especially in less affluent countries where sickle cell is most common? Rob Stein, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the mysterious wave of illnesses hitting hundreds of girls from more than 50 schools in Iran. It's 729. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Give back to your community with a mental health and wellness degree from Leslie University. Get started at leslie.edu. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. With a new food truck available for private parties and events in Greater Boston, LaCutura.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Iraq today on an unannounced visit to a country that still has 2,500 American troops on its soil. After talks with Iraq's prime minister, Austin pledged continued U.S. support for Iraq's security and stability as Iraqi forces keep battling ISIS militants. It's been nearly 20 years since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq removed Saddam Hussein from power. Labor unions in France are on strike today to protest plans by the government to raise the country's minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley is in Paris. Chaos has already begun, really. Many schools are closed as teachers and students join the protest. Oil refineries are blocked. And truckers have started blocking roads in what's known as an Operation Escargot. It means you drive slowly in every lane. British lawmakers are considering legislation that would deport and permanently ban migrants arriving on U.K. shores illegally. Villa Marx reports. Interior Minister Suella Braverman will be required under the new legislation to deport, then bar the future entry of anyone who's reached Britain through a route the government considers illegal. 
Last year, more than 45,000 people arrived in the UK from France via dangerous boat crossings. Aid organisations and political opponents call the new plans, quote, unworkable. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The owner of Brockton Hospital is expanding access to health care services. That's after a fire last month that shut the hospital down. The hospital's specialty and outpatient services have moved to temporary locations. And Signature Healthcare announced yesterday it opened two new walk-in urgent care centers. Spokesperson Lorraine McGrath says the community-needed services resumed quickly. It hasn't even been four weeks yet, and to be moving services, deploying staff to other areas to put these two urgent care centers up and running has really been a heroic effort. The company plans to reopen Brockton Hospital in a limited capacity by June. Assumption University in Worcester plans to donate more than $30,000 from a priest accused of sexual abuse. The priest was named in a public Pennsylvania grand jury report on sexual abuse of children. He donated the money to Assumption, and the school is giving the money to the survivors' network of those abused by priests. SNAP says the money will be used to support survivors. A new sound exhibition at the MassArt Art Museum needs visitors to bring the experience to life. WBWAR's Andrea Shea explains. Artist and DJ Jace Clayton's installation of 40 speakers would sit silent in MAM's gallery if visitors didn't share songs from their cell phones. The museum's executive and artistic director, Lisa Tung, loves that idea and is thrilled to host the East Coast premiere of Clayton's piece titled 40 Part Part. To have an artist who really wants the public to come and take over his piece. He's a sound artist, but he doesn't want to program the sound. He wants the public and the community to come do that. Clayton's installation is up at MAM, which is always free, through July 30th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Celtics' losing streak is up to three games. They fell to the Cavaliers 118-114 to last night in Cleveland. The Celts will be back home tomorrow to play the Portland Trailblazers. At spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Tigers 7-1. to Boston first baseman Justin Turner is recovering after he was hit in the face by a pitch. He had to get stitches, and there's no word on how long he'll be out. The Sox will play Atlanta tonight night. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we'll have a high right around 40. There will also be some high winds. Tonight mostly cloudy and we may dip into the 20s. Tomorrow still mostly cloudy with temperatures rising to a high in the low 40s. It'll still be pretty windy. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station,
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Hundreds of students at girls' schools in Iran have gotten sick. The cause is unclear. There are no reports of deaths, but many Iranians believe the students were poisoned. Borzu Daragahi is an international correspondent for The Independent. Uh, what do we know about what's happening to these students who are getting sick? I mean, they're all reporting a similar smell uh, coming into their classrooms or schools. Um, they are, uh, some of them fall sick immediately. Uh, some have been hospitalized. Most uh, recover within uh, uh, 24 hours or so. Some do not. Some remain hospitalized. Um, and it is creating a lot of uh, panic and, and a lot of uh, uh, unease among parents. And it's become a, a, a kind of a huge issue at this point, a national issue uh, and even an international issue. And why do some people think that it's poisoning? Well, these, this demographic, these um, high school age girls were the uh, same group who were leading the charge against the regime during months of protests uh, last month. And there are these very shadowy, very extremist groups in Iran, uh, especially in the uh, shrine city of Qom, where these uh, uh, alleged attacks began. Um, and they have a history of carrying out these kinds of terror operations, sometimes uh, beyond the control of the regime, even though they're fanatically pro-regime. Uh, so this kind of thing has happened before. There was a spate of uh, serial killings targeting uh, dissidents in the 90s with these groups. And there was also a, a, a spate of young men splashing acid onto the faces of women that they perceived were not properly dressed. Now, Iran's a supreme leader says that any confirmed poisoning of schoolgirls would be, quote, an unforgivable crime. Um, is the Iranian government taking any action so far? Well, I mean, they are, they've had to. They've been forced to. They've been shamed into doing it. These attacks began in late November, uh, and they were trying to keep, kind of slide it under the rug, downplay it, et cetera. And now they've moved into damage control mode, and now they're addressing it as it can't be addressed anymore. And the, the response for the regime is typical. Foreign uh, kind of interlopers are responsible. The enemy has done something. They're overhyping it. They're the ones who are doing this. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they are saying that they've launched an investigation. There are some rumors of uh, suspicious vehicles here and there, uh, but nothing has come of it yet. So no suspects or no even leaning on what no could be arrests, the cause? No suspects, but there are, you know, these, the, and, they, and then at the same time, they're kind of alleging that maybe this is psychological, that no poisoning has actually taken place. Uh, it's some kind of mass hysteria and so on. But the, the parents of the uh, girls who are being uh, attacked don't buy this. So are people in Iran just confused, angry, a, a mix of both? It sounds like they would be at this point. People are enraged. And this just adds to uh, mistrust of the regime and suspicion about the regime. And it shows uh, the kind of nature of the regime that, that no one believes anything they say anymore because they have such a credibility problem. Borzu Daragahi is an international correspondent for The Independent. Thanks a lot for your time. Always a pleasure. Last night on the Fox Cable Channel, a big star, Tucker Carlson, called the 2020 election, quote, a grave betrayal of American democracy. Tucker Carlson said that on Fox, even though court documents from a $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox suggest that Carlson does not believe there were any irregularities. He does not believe what he is telling you. NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick checked in with former Fox News journalists. 
The disclosures in the lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems reflect that Fox News put people on the air in front of millions of viewers, people who its stars and executives and producers thought were nuts, and that's their word, to make a wild claim that the network's journalists never believed that Dominion had cheated Donald Trump of the presidential election in 2020 by somehow switching votes to Joe Biden. The scandal is making headlines around the country. It's not news to a bunch of people who used to work at Fox. Take Chris Steyerwalt. I was not particularly surprised. Or Julie Roginsky. There's not one thing in there that surprised me or struck me, and I've read everything uh, in those filings. Or Carl Cameron. I'm surprised that there weren't more people who would speak out. Carl Cameron was chief political correspondent for Fox. He left at the outset of the Trump administration after 21 years at the network. There was a time when the journalists had some control, and that clearly has eroded exactly when that started or not really doesn't matter. Uh, What it ended up with is the organization with a serious, serious legal problem. Each of them point in some way to the 2016 departure of Roger Ailes, the celebrated, reviled, and ultimately disgraced former Fox News chief. It's the absence of Roger Ailes. The mentality that no one was going to be bigger than the network had disappeared. That's former Fox commentator and guest host Julie Roginsky. And to be clear on her feelings about Ailes, she was among the many women at Fox News who alleged he sexually harassed them. Fox News says CEO Suzanne Scott has completely reshaped the network's culture. Even so, Roginsky says Ailes enforced an intense discipline that vanished right as Trump won the nomination and headed to the White House. Over the Trump years, many journalists left Fox. The people who stayed by the very nature of being allowed to stay had to accept the notion that they were going to be led by the mob, and the mob was being led by Donald Trump. No one stood in the crucible more squarely than Chris Steyerwalt. He was Fox's political director in 2020, part of the decision desk team on election night that called the swing state of Arizona for Biden, meaning Fox did so before any other network and angered millions of Trump supporters. It was particularly sad for an organization that had used to call itself the most powerful name in news that it was such a fear-driven, such an anxious thing, and the, the unwillingness to suffer the short-term cost uh, for the long-term good, and, if I can be especially corny, the good of the republic. Steyerwalt and Washington Managing Editor Bill Salmon argued that the network needed to level with their viewers, but the private exchanges show many of Fox's opinion hosts and executives, knowing the claims of fraud were baseless, nonetheless put them out there to woo back angry Trump voters. What you read in those filings are people losing their heads because of ratings numbers, right? And one of the emails that was released was from Bill to me, uh, where he talked about how weak ratings make good journalists do bad things. And that's a fact. Before Biden even took office, Fox forced out Steyerwalt and Salmon. A top Fox News PR executive said, quote, Chris Steyerwalt's quest for relevancy knows no bounds. Fox has called the exchanges made public cherry-picked and out of context. There are hundreds more to come. David Folkenflik, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
Coming up next on Morning Edition, with inventory of mid-size homes at an all-time low, young and older buyers are now often competing against each other. And in our next hour, 23 protesters have been charged with domestic terrorism for demonstrations against a police training facility outside Atlanta, Georgia. We'll start out with some some sun this morning, but high winds will bring clouds in throughout the day, and by afternoon it should be partly overcast in the upper 30s and lower 40s. Tonight, overcast and in the low 30s. Tomorrow, more clouds than sun with high winds, and it'll be in the 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Master's in Organizational Psychology for Careers in HR and Talent Management. Scholarships available williamjames.edu, and Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with events, book recommendations, book clubs, children's story hour, and more, portersquarebooks.com. A merger involving the largest airline operating at Logan Airport could face new challenges from government agencies. Bloomberg reports the U.S. Justice Department and the Department of Transportation, are expected to block JetBlue's buyout of Spirit Airlines. The nearly $4 billion deal would make JetBlue the fifth largest airline in the U.S. Both departments claim the merger would mean higher ticket prices for passengers. The pharmaceutical arm of the UMass Chan Medical School is laying off 26 people. Mass Biologics filed a notice of the layoffs with the state last week. All the employees work at its Mattapan site. The college says the layoffs will happen by the end of April. 789 Bakery in Somerville will close by the end of the month after 12 years in business. Its owner says rising costs and staffing shortages are partly to blame. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Swing by an open house for a mid-size home these days, and you'd probably see buyers from two different generations sizing each other up. With so few properties for sale, millennials and baby boomers are often competing for the same homes. Here's NPR's Arzu Resvani. Michael Chen and his family have been hunting for a home for a while. I think we've been looking for somewhere between three and four years. The 39-year-old healthcare consultant lives in Rochester, New York with his wife and two kids. Chen wants a house where he can comfortably host his parents, where there are also better public schools. But he's been up against a lot in recent years. First, it was the high home prices, then the climbing mortgage rates, and lately, there's been another big challenge. It's funny, I think it's sort of become a recurring pattern. We go to these open houses and we often see folks like our parents' age, so I guess boomers, Those boomers, they've also taken notice. You know, we're two different generations, and yet we're finding ourselves in the same places at the same time wanting the same thing. That's 71-year-old Jane Wilson. She and her husband, who are both retired teachers, are in the market for a home in Hawaii. We're tired of a paddleboard behind the sofa, golf clubs in the entry, and we don't really have room for our grandchildren to come over and visit us while we're here. 
Millennials like the Chens have hit their peak home buying years later in life, at a time when many boomers like the Wilsons are living longer and also moving later, says Jessica Louts of the National Association of Realtors. I do think that speaks to people outside of COVID being healthier later in life and being active and wanting to purchase a home at a time where historically we may have seen people staying in place or moving into family members' homes or a retirement community, but not purchasing a primary residence. These shifting timelines have brought the two generations head to head. And with the supply of homes so scarce and the prices still high, millennials like Chen have had a hard time competing. I'm going up against people who have had 20, 30, 40 years of professional experience and life savings and retirement savings. I would say probably they have more to draw on than I do. Longtime homeowners can wield the equity they've built over decades in ways millennials typically can't. They can often clear the competition with all cash offers. And it doesn't stop there, says Florida-based real estate agent Christina Goldstein. They've got a lot of power in that cash. They can waive all of the contingencies. We don't want an inspection. We don't want an appraisal. We don't care if it needs flood insurance because they're not being required by a mortgage company or a lender to have all of those things in place. This competition does sometimes turn into collaboration. Nearly a quarter of millennials who do buy a home get help from the bank of mom and dad, who are often boomers. For young homebuyers who can't depend on that kind of intergenerational wealth, it's a steep hill to climb, though not impossible. We're doing a final walkthrough tomorrow and closing on Friday. And so... <laughs> the Chens did finally find their home. Their years-long search gave them time to save for a greater down payment. They also took a page out of the Boomer playbook and waived some inspections. As for the Wilsons, to buy their next home, they'll also be selling. And they have one request for their agent. Can we avoid the person who comes in with that cash offer right away and, and sell to a young family? We, we'd really like to do that. And there's no shortage of young families who'd welcome it. Arizu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview and to brighten up my morning. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. I'm happy to be here and try to brighten up your morning. You always do. This morning, I should go get us some treats and bring them back after this. You don't have to bring treats to brighten up my morning. (laughs) So listen, we do this series, this segment called Brilliant Boston. We have so many amazing academic institutions, and in every one of them are professors who are teaching fascinating classes. And it's great to be able to just learn a little bit of that for our own lives. So uh, Terrence Johnson teaches at the Harvard Divinity School. He teaches a course called Existence Behind the Veil that looks at um, theology and black spirituality and takes theological concepts to try to help process and understand racism. It is deep stuff. It is serious stuff. But there are concepts there that we can all learn from and take into life. And so he's going to take us into the class a little today and see what he can teach us, see if we're ready for graduate class. (laughs) Fascinating. It does sound fascinating. This is a tough time to think and talk about spirituality and theology. I admire you doing it. Thanks, Rupa. Thanks, Tiziana. Have a good Tuesday. You too. That's Radio (laughs) Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu MBA. Just a couple years ago, Americans were saving money at one of the highest rates on record. Not anymore. Savings are dropping and credit card debt is rising. Sometimes it feels very, like, heavy, like crushing. You know, I'm going to have to pay this back. I have to pay this back. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Margaret Atwood has always been a keen observer of life. Writing is what we do. And storytelling is what human beings do. And every single person that you will ever meet has got a story of my life, which they're constantly revising. In her new short story collection, Old Babes in the Wood, Atwood has characters modeled after herself and her late husband. She also writes of the fantastical. Her story, titled Free for All, has parallels to perhaps her best-known work, adapted into a TV series, The Handmaid's Tale. It is a kind of companion piece to, to Handmaid, so flip it over and see what it would be like if it were, in fact, men who had to be controlled in their personal lives, for their own good, of course. If you could break down that story a little bit. So it's it's a killer disease. A killer sexually transmitted disease. So this is written right in the middle of the first wave of AIDS. Mm. Uh, and the solution that society has come up with is uh, you would have to have arranged marriages and you would have to have sexually pure uh, participants, otherwise everybody would just die. Yeah. Um, so they so they go about it, and the story is set fairly far down the line when a hierarchical chain of command has developed, and it's told from one of the point of view of one of the arrangers of these marriages, and the different uh, because of course it's all gated communities. You can't let people just go running around. So it's from told from that point of view. And like you said, the men are the ones that have to be controlled. They both do, but but men also. As well as women. Exactly. So going back to the age of, of European aristocracy, when royal houses married off their kids to one another, mm. it's a similar idea, except they were doing it for the money. Yeah, because in the story, there there's these creation of houses and marrying kids off to each other for children. That would certainly happen. It would be a practical solution to a very difficult problem. Also in your other stories, like your conversation, your fictional conversation with George Orwell, there's some poking fun also about the generational shifts and the things you can and can't say anymore. As a writer, I'm just wondering what you think about these conversations about what can and can't be said, what can and can't be written, what can and can't be... That's been that's been going on for a very long time. This yeah. is just a new iteration of it. So, having been a victorious, I'm here to tell you that some people felt in polite conversation that you shouldn't use the word leg. Oh, wow. And you also shouldn't use the word chicken breast. <laughs> chicken breast? Well, it was a breast, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you have this specific exchange with the novelist George Orwell when he talks about women being trifling, women writers. Yes. And you say, oh, you can't say that anymore. 
That's considered trivializing. Well, um, you can't say it anymore because it is quite demonstrably not true anymore. Right. Um, So that's one reason you can't say anymore. Where did that conversation come from? The conversation came from a magazine called Inc., I-N-K-U-E, which has a series called The Dead Interview. And as a living writer, you get invited to do the dead interview with any dead writer of your choice. Why'd you choose George Orwell? Unnatural for me. He ruined my life when I was about nine or ten because I read Animal Farm thinking it was going to be like The Wind in the Willows and not knowing anything about Trotsky or Stalin or any of those things at all. So I just thought it was about these animals, and they were so mean. They were so mean to the horse. He was an early influence because I next read 1984, probably about when it came out, paperback edition, which I still have, lurid cover. Everything had lurid covers in the in the 50s, and I think a lot of people read world literature thinking they were reading a going to get a steamy sex book and instead got... War and Peace. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, wrote, I read him as a teenager and um, really quite influential on me. So he was hugely influential on in your writing? Eventually, yes. Not, not immediately, but when we get to The Handmaid's Tale, for sure. When I think about Free For All, when I think about Handmaid's Tale, when I think about other things in your writing, there's a lot that's very terrifying about humanity and familiar, even if it seems slightly far off. Well, not as far off as it used to feel. Why do you build the world you do, observe people in this way at our worst? Also at your best as well, uh, because that's what people are. Yeah. We do have a worst. And if you spend much time reading the newspapers, you'll you'll read a lot about it because it's my whole job. <laughs> oh, then you know, yeah, the worst catches the attention more quickly than best. You've been a professional writer for for decades now. When you think really about a very very long time, <laughs> well, that's what you've done. That's your life. And I and I wonder when you think about your writing in your 20s and 30s and the world that you wrote in in your 20s and 30s and the world that you write in today, how different is it? A lot of material differences and technological differences and also what was on people's minds. And that always is changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can make a timeline of these concerns, interests, and changes in style, but it is always changing. And today, when you think about the world you write in? When you're writing um, a story, it's either going to be set in the present, which is never really possible because by the time it's published, that's going to be the past. Mm-hmm. It takes a year or two. So it's either going to be in the future where you have free scope, the future contains whatever I say it does, or the past where you have to be pretty particular about getting your details right because somebody's going to call you on it if they're wrong. Margaret Atwood, her latest short story collection is called Old Babes in the Wood. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Chinese officials warn that Beijing and Washington are headed for conflict and confrontation unless the U.S. changes course. It's Tuesday, March 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, this morning, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is expected to tell a Senate committee more interest rate hikes are needed to combat inflation. Also this hour, the trial of the men accused of plotting the 9-11 terror attacks is still in limbo. It really would be sad if people like my mother die without seeing her husband's killers get prosecuted. Plus, the White House considers reinstating the detentions of migrant families. And a new sound installation at a Boston museum includes your smartphone. And then they'll hear whatever they've chosen transformed and mutated and spatialized and spun around and all sorts of different things will happen. Cloudy in 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Congressional Democrats are turning up the pressure on Republicans to release their budget plan. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this comes two days before President Biden is expected to unveil the final details of his own spending proposal. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling on the top Republican in the House to release his budget plan, adding that Americans deserve to see what both sides are putting on the table. Speaker McCarthy. Where is your plan? The president's about to release his budget. Are you going to release yours anytime soon? Enough with the dodging. Enough with the excuses. Show us your plan. Biden's budget proposal is expected to reignite the debate over the terms for raising the nation's debt ceiling. Some Republicans are demanding concessions in exchange for lifting the borrowing limit, including major cuts in government spending. But the White House has refused to negotiate. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell opens two days of congressional testimony today. He's expected to focus on inflation. Observers are very interested to hear if Powell will give any hints about the future of interest rates. The Fed has been hiking these in an effort to bring down prices. Three Republican-led states are pulling out of a collaborative effort among the states to fight voter fraud. NPR's Giles Snyder explains. The system called the Electronic Registration Information Center, better known by its acronym ERIC, has become the target of conspiracy theories related to the 2020 election, despite being a successful effort that participating states use to ensure the accuracy of their voter rolls. The three states that are leaving, Florida, Missouri, and West Virginia, bring the number to five. 
leaving the group with 28 participating states in the District of Columbia. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. In France, strikes and protests against President Emmanuel Macron's overhaul of the French retirement system are entering a new phase today. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports unions are vowing to shut the country down if Macron does not withdraw his bill, raising the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Protesters are marking the sixth day of mobilization against the retirement reform since the beginning of the year, but today's strike is open-ended, meaning the upheaval could go on for days. Unions hope rolling walkouts will disrupt daily life and threaten the economy so severely that the government will be forced into submission. Protests are expected in more than 200 French cities, with teachers, gas and electricity workers, and train drivers all expected to join in. Public transport will be crippled, schools closed, and oil refineries blocked. Polls show 56% of the French support paralyzing the nation to block what they say is an unnecessary reform. So far, the government hasn't budged, saying people must work longer to keep the pension system viable. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Moore Healy today will testify about her new budget. She'll talk about the over $55 billion proposal with state house and Senate members. Healy says her budget will help make Massachusetts more affordable. It also includes investments in climate change and education. Officials at UMass Amherst are outlining how they'll adjust the school's alcohol education programs. That comes after nearly 30 students had to be taken to the hospital over the weekend. Alden Bourne reports. The students were taking part in an annual off-campus party tradition called the Blarney Blowout. UMass officials say many students were seen carrying plastic gallon containers believed to be Borgs. Blackout rage gallons have gained popularity among the college crowd on TikTok and are typically a potent mix of water, alcohol, and flavoring. Brandy Hepner LeBanc is a vice chancellor at UMass. Our immediate strategy is to make sure we get some quick messaging out to students and their families. and We want to make sure that they understand the risks inherent in this large volume drinking. And then once they return to campus after spring break, how do we really look at the programs we have in place to talk specifically to this large volume drinking? Some of the students involved could face consequences from the university. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is warning people about eating fish caught in 13 spots around the state. They include Lake Quisigamund in Worcester and Pierce Lake in Saugus. The advisory comes after some fish were found with high levels of PFAS chemicals. Those chemicals have been linked to a number of health concerns. Mark Nascarella is the state toxicologist. At least one group of fish from each water body was determined to have levels of PFAS that are unsafe for uh, unlimited consumption. The state says all the water bodies tested are safe for swimming or other recreational activities. Northern Essex Community College will be closed again today because of a cyber attack. The school first shut down its campuses in Haverhill and Lawrence yesterday after noticing the attack. It's unclear who's behind it and what damage it may have caused. School leaders say they're hoping to reopen by tomorrow. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The Celtics lost to the Cavaliers 118-114 to last night in Cleveland. The Seas will return home tomorrow to play the Portland Trailblazers. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll be windy and in the upper 30s, cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Cloudy again tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The Fed has already raised interest rates eight times in the last year, and they could do it some more. Yeah, you see, raising interest rates is supposed to restrain the economy and bring inflation down. Prices are still climbing faster than most people would like, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is sure to be asked about that when he testifies before the Senate Banking Committee today. NPR Scott Horsley covers the Fed. Hey there, Scott. Good morning, Steve. How's the Fed doing? You know, their job's looking a little tougher now than it did about a month ago, the last time that Fed policymakers met. Hmm. In the five weeks since that meeting, we've had a killer jobs report showing more than half a million jobs added in January. We've had retail numbers showing people are still spending at a rapid clip. And we've had inflation reports showing prices are not leveling off as much as had been hoped. You know, ordinarily, strong job growth and spending would be a sign of economic strength, but When you're wrestling with high inflation, it's not what the Fed wants to see. Here's how Mary Daly, who heads the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, summed it up over the weekend. It's clear there is more work to do. In order to put this episode of high inflation behind us, further policy tightening, maintained for a longer period, will likely be necessary. And other Fed officials have been sounding similar uh, alarms, suggesting that interest rates may have to go up higher and stay up longer in order to get prices under control. If, in fact, they do that, what would that mean for the broader economy? Well, it means more of a drag on the housing market. We're seeing mortgage rates climbing once again. Uh, It means carrying a balance on your credit card would cost more. Uh, So far, the Fed's efforts have not hurt the job market. Unemployment in January was the lowest in more than half a century. Uh, We're going to find out later this week what happened in February. Uh, We're also going to get new inflation numbers next week. So by the time the Fed's rate-setting committee meets in a couple of weeks, they will have a better idea whether all that hot January data was just a fluke or maybe a sign of a longer-run trend. Right now, most investors are betting that the Fed is going to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point at its next meeting. But the odds of a larger rate hike have gone up in the last month. Uh, Back in December, the average Fed policymaker was predicting that interest rates would top out at just over 5% or about half a point higher than they are right now. Given what we've seen and heard in the last few weeks, it's now possible that policymakers will have to nudge that uh, peak interest rate a little bit higher. Okay, so Jerome Powell testifies today. He's a guy that can use an adjective in the wrong way and it moves markets. So what else will you be listening for? 
Well, I'll be curious whether Powell gets any pushback from the senators over the Fed's aggressive interest rate hikes. So far, most lawmakers have been giving the central bank a lot of latitude. Uh, they and their constituents really want to see inflation come down, too. Uh, but we'll see if there's any, any change in that support uh, this morning. Uh, as you know, Steve, Congress is under pressure to raise the federal debt ceiling or else sometime this summer or maybe fall, the government won't be able to pay all of its own bills. House Republicans are demanding unspecified spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt limit. Uh, usually Powell tries to steer clear of partisan battles like this, but he has said that lawmakers must raise the debt limit, and he's warned that if they don't, and if there's a government default, no one should expect the Fed to step in and limit the fallout. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks for joining us so early once again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. In Georgia, 23 people are charged with domestic terrorism. The charges related to protests against the construction of a police training facility in a forest near Atlanta. Kiana Jones is a member of an interfaith coalition that asked the city council yesterday to abandon what's known as Cop City. We are here as clergy to cry loud and spare not. We are opening our mouths and crying with a loud voice to say that we don't want Cop City. I live in East Atlanta. I don't want Cop City. Demonstrators have occupied the site since last year. One protester was shot and killed during a police raid in January. Madeline Thigpen has been reporting on this. She is with Capital B in Atlanta. Madeline, can you tell us how police came to arrest people at that construction site and then at a nearby music festival as well? Yes, so protesters entered the construction site and set fire to multiple construction vehicles. Um, once the police had that situation under control, they then began to move on to the music festival, which was being hosted by the Stop Cop City movement in an adjacent part of the forest. Um, a number of people were arrested that were music festival goers. We do know that uh, many of them were later released that evening. At least one legal observer with the National Lawyers Guild was arrested. He is still being held on domestic terrorism charges. He's an um, attorney also with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which described his arrest as part of a months-long escalation of policing tactics against protesters and observers who oppose the destruction of the Wilani Forest to build a police training facility. All right, so 23 people charged with domestic terrorism. Is there an explanation why they were charged with that in particular? No, but um, protesters connected with the Stop Cop City movement have been charged with domestic terrorism starting in December. We do know a number that were arrested on the day that the protester Tortuguita was killed have also been charged with domestic terrorism. Um, there hasn't been any um, clear understanding as far as I know, to why specifically domestic terrorism charges are being used in this case versus other protest movements. All right. Now, uh, police say that uh, many of the people who've been charged are not from Georgia. In fact, uh, Governor Brian Kemp has called them outside agitators, his, his words. Uh, there's uh, uh, local opposition to that, uh, isn't there? Yes. I spoke with a resident yesterday who said you know, they called MLK an outside agitator. So she was very confused as to why they would then begin to use that language in Atlanta, where MLK was from, a city that celebrates him. I spoke to a resident yesterday who said 
she attended the faith leader um, press conference at City Hall because she was ready to see people who live in Atlanta make a righteous stand against Cop City. Cop City, this uh, training facility that uh, is being built by police in this part of the forest. Why is the construction there so controversial? So Weelani Forest is currently the largest urban forest in the United States. So there are environmental concerns with protecting this large green space. And then there are also concerns from a lot of um, racial justice racial justice activists who say that this will contribute to the militarization of police, which in turn will contribute to higher uses of force, deadly force against black residents. And the project, I know it was under construction. Any status report on where that stands? No. Um, since the construction vehicles have been burned, uh, we aren't sure when construction will begin. Um, a member of a community advisory committee did file an appeal that should stop construction. Um, that did not happen. So I think that's part of why the activists decided to enter that site and um, burn those vehicles. But uh, we don't know yet what the status of the project will be moving forward. So I guess protesters can say that they at least... Uh paused construction of the site? Yes, but I would not say that that means um, construction will stop. Um, I think it will continue to move forward because they do have the support of the city and local law enforcement who are ready to see this site begin to be built. All right, Madeline Thigpen is a reporter with Capital B in Atlanta. Madeline, thank you very much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. Some Southern Californians have been stranded for more than a week by snow. A blizzard buried homes and roads in the San Bernardino Mountains. And today, the town of Crestline may finally get some help. Some snow-covered roads are clearing, so residents like Steve Lucarelli can get a break. I think a lot of people are under the impression that we're just having a good time with the snow. And that's just simply not the case. It's not fun. It's pretty dire. We need more people here helping. Paul Solo also lives in Crestline. So many of the residents up here are frustrated at the response to the storm. He told us he was out of fresh food and that some of his neighbors need medicine. We're really in bad shape up here. Steve Lucarelli says Crestline's only grocery store closed after snow crushed the roof. We've lost our tire store, our Ace Hardware store is damaged. And then several other businesses had roof collapses. A house at the end of our street actually folded like a house of cards under the weight of the snow. And now he's worried about his own roof. We've noticed some stress cracking on our walls. So I've been up on the roof trying to remove about five feet of snow that's accumulated up there to, to get that weight off. Wow, five feet of snow on the roof. Paul Solo says there's only so much that he and his neighbors have been able to do. Frankly, the snow is so much. I've broken two shovels. I mean, imagine how much you have to shovel snow for you to physically break a shovel, and I've broken two this week. Now, though conditions should improve, other parts of the California mountains could face added snow later this week. Hey, thanks for listening to Morning Edition, which comes your way on your public radio station. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we have the story of a woman who was a kind of acting president. 
A biographer says Edith Wilson made presidential decisions after her husband, Woodrow Wilson, suffered a stroke. The writer of that book is Rebecca Roberts, who in the past has guest hosted on this program. Listen on your phone, your smart speaker, your computer, or on the radio. And remember that you can always follow us on social media. A. Martinez is A. Martinez LA. Layla Fado is Layla Fado. And I'm NPR Inskeep. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, settlement talks for the five men accused in the 9-11 attacks have stalled one year after they began. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way, too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities. Supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator. ClimateInteractive.org and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. Today at WBUR.org, read about the Repair Cafe. It's a group of volunteers who will fix things for free, from bikes to jewelry to electronics and more. Organizers say it's a way to save money and a way to save resources. The society we're in is all driven on like digging more things up out of the earth, turning them into products, and then sending them to a landfill as fast as we can. That doesn't seem like a good plan if you think of us living on a finite ball called the Earth, because you'll eventually run out of things to dig up and places to throw them. Martha Biebinger takes you inside a repair cafe held regularly in Framingham. Check out her story at WBUR.org. Increasingly cloudy today with a high near 40. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, still cloudy, still windy, and we'll have a low around 29. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and windy with a high near 42. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Select Quote. For over 35 years, SelectQuote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at SelectQuote.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Family members of those killed in the September 11th terror attacks say they're frustrated that there has been no trial. Last year, after more than two decades of waiting, there seemed to be a breakthrough when settlement talks began. But as NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer reports, those talks are now in limbo. Adele Welty's son was a New York City firefighter. On September 11, 2001, he responded to a call that an airplane had hit the World Trade Center, and he never came home again. At the time, Adele Welty was 65 years old. I am presently 86 years old, and I would like this resolved in my lifetime. Welty hoped the U.S. military court in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, would convict the 9-11 attackers. But the case has been dragging on for over 20 years, and Welty got fed up with Guantanamo's dysfunction and gridlock. It all seemed as though it could never be resolved. So she was elated when she heard that alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his four co-defendants might plead guilty in return for up to life sentences. There needs to be accountability and life in prison with no chance of parole is justice in my view. So what's preventing the settlement talks from moving more quickly? After all, for the past year, the 9-11 judge has canceled all public hearings in the case so lawyers can focus on negotiating. And several top government officials who once supported a trial now want plea deals. Yet after 12 months of talks, there's no resolution. From our end, I mean, we're, we're just waiting. Alka Pradhan is a lawyer for one of the 9-11 defendants. Really, until we get a go-ahead, that the agencies even want to continue with plea negotiations. Everything is stuck. She and other Guantanamo lawyers are waiting for the Biden administration to address several key issues, like where the prisoners would serve their sentences and what health care they'd receive, since some of them have injuries from torture. There's no reason after 10 plus months that these questions couldn't and shouldn't be answered by the higher ups in the administration. That's Scott Ream, who runs the Washington, D.C. office of the Center for Victims of Torture. He says President Biden could speed up the process and Ream wishes he would, even though he knows a settlement would anger people who want the 9-11 defendants put on trial and executed. But for anyone who objects to resolving the case with a plea agreement, I'd ask them, what's the alternative? And although federal courts have successfully prosecuted hundreds of terrorism cases, Reem says moving the 9-11 case to federal court at this point is a practical and legal impossibility. That's despite the military court being widely viewed as irreparably broken. The 9-11 case is not going to trial in the military commissions. It is not remotely close to that, and it never will be. But President Biden has been publicly silent about the 9-11 settlement talks. For now, his administration's focus at Guantanamo seems to be releasing prisoners who have already been cleared to leave. 32 men are still being held there. In the past month, three inmates have been let go. These are prisoners not related to the 9-11 case. But the ongoing 9-11 delays test the patience of Glenn Morgan. His father died in the World Trade Center collapse. With the passage of time, I spend more time trying to let go of my anger. Morgan wants the 9-11 defendants to receive the death penalty. But after two decades of political logjam at Guantanamo, he would settle for a plea deal. 
It really would be sad if people like my mother die without seeing her husband's killers get prosecuted. The longer the 9-11 case goes on, the more he worries the defendants will die without being found guilty. And that's a tragedy that's just completely avoidable. And shame on us if we as Americans or our politicians can't get out of our own way. But the Defense Department is lowering expectations for a quick resolution. It told NPR that settlement talks are expected to continue for, quote, some time. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. A man in Daytona Beach, Florida, is recovering from surgery for an alligator bite. It attacked him as he stepped out of his front door over the weekend. A little over two weeks ago, another alligator killed an 85-year-old woman in Fort Pierce while she was trying to save her dog. So how common are these attacks? Frank Mazzotti is a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Florida. He's a croc doc who's worked with alligators for more than 40 years. I feel like I am in much greater danger driving to my study site than when I get out to work on alligators. Oh, so traffic is still more dangerous than gators. An unprovoked alligator attack is considered extremely rare, although wildlife is still unpredictable. One of the things that I've learned over the years is to never say that an animal will not behave in a particular manner. And Mazzotti says while he'd never before heard of an attack on the doorstep, it's not uncommon for gators to show up at someone's home. Are they looking for food? Maybe. A lot of the ponds that they live in don't have a lot of food in them, and maybe there was something good smelling coming out of the house. So how do you avoid drawing a gator's attention? If you're next to water, and then if you behave in any way that further attracts an alligator, for example, you have a small pet with you, or you crouch down by the water's edge and use your hands to splash the water. Why would anyone do that? Yeah. Even though the chance of an attack is slim, Mazzotti says there are things to keep in mind if you encounter an alligator. Many times, the first thing that will happen is that the alligator will let you go. Take advantage of that and run away and do that in a straight line. Hmm. The alligator is fair. So no weaving back and forth, no zigzagging. And if you're in the water, the croc doc says, poke the alligator in the eye or hit it on the head for advantage human. You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WVUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, three Republican-led states have announced they're pulling out of an interstate database that helps prevent voter fraud. It's 829. Coming to WBUR City Space later this month, a conversation with NPR's Ari Shapiro. He'll be joined by our All Things Considered host, Lisa Mullins, to talk about his new book. It's called The Best Strangers in the World, and it's about his storied journalism career. Join us in person or virtually on March 26. People who attend in person will get a signed copy of the book. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. 
Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And The Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic guitars for more than 50 years because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is on an unannounced visit to Iraq, where he's been reaffirming U.S. support to the country and its people. We're deeply committed to ensuring that the Iraqi people can live in peace and dignity with safety and security. Austin was speaking in Baghdad following talks with Iraq's prime minister. The Pentagon still has 2,500 American troops in Iraq, helping to advise Iraqi forces as they continue battling ISIS militants. The messaging service WhatsApp says it will be more open about its privacy policies amid pressure from the European Union. Terry Schultz reports. WhatsApp could have faced fines from EU governments if it didn't improve the way it communicates about changes to its privacy policy. European consumer protection organizations and authorities accused the company of not being transparent when it implemented new privacy practices in 2021. Now WhatsApp agrees to provide users clarification of the changes, as well as to prominently display options to accept or reject them. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will be testifying to a Senate committee today where he's expected to offer his latest assessments of the U.S. economy and the potential for additional interest rate hikes. The Fed has raised rates eight times since early last year to combat high inflation. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Everett needs a new school superintendent. The school committee there voted last night not to renew the contract of Superintendent Priya Tihiliani. That comes after she filed discrimination complaints against the mayor. The school committee says that had nothing to do with its vote. Cynthia Sarney is a school committee member. She says her vote was based on school safety and cleanliness. Also, the voices of people that were afraid to speak out for retaliation. There were a lot of... um Families that bumped into me in the stores or somewhere but refused to give their names because they felt retaliation if they came up and spoke. Um, so I'm going to speak on their behalf in, um, on my vote. Tahiliani was the first person of color to lead the district. Town officials in Amherst want to pay tribute to people who died from COVID. The group tells MassLive it voted to adopt COVID-19 Memorial Day as the first Monday in March. The state is also thinking about declaring an official COVID Remembrance Day. Gloucester will spend $150 million to upgrade its wastewater treatment system. The city needs to make the improvements to comply with the Clean Water Act. Federal officials say undertreated water from Gloucester has been dumped in Massachusetts Bay. The city expects the upgrades to be done in five years. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. 
The Celtics lost their third straight last night. They fell to the Cavaliers 118-114 in Cleveland. The Seas are off today. They'll host the Portland Trailblazers tomorrow. The Red Sox remain unbeaten at spring training. They beat the Tigers 7-1 yesterday. The Sox will play Atlanta tonight. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we'll have a high right around 40. There will also be some high winds. Tonight, mostly cloudy and we may dip into the 20s. Tomorrow, still mostly cloudy with temperatures rising to a high in the low 40s. It'll still be pretty windy. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 8.33. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise, Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Three more states say they will stop using a computer tool that helps to keep voter lists accurate. Florida, Missouri, and West Virginia are the latest to drop out. The system that helps to root out voter fraud has become a target for right-wing misinformation. So let's talk this through. We're in Studio 31 here in Washington, D.C. We've got our colleagues on the other side of the glass. And NPR's Miles Parks is in the room with us this morning. Miles, thanks for coming by early. Really hey, good it. morning, Steve. So what is this system? I don't think I'd really heard of it. And most people probably haven't. It's called the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC for short, which sounds really complicated. Hi, but, ERIC. Yeah, okay, but go it's on. pretty simple, right? So it's a partnership of more than 30 member states where they share all sorts of government data, election records, but then also things from the state DMV, death records to try to keep their voter registration lists more up to date. Hmm. Traditionally, it's given both political parties a little bit of what they want. For liberals, it helps register new voters when they move. For conservatives, it helps get dead voters off the voter list. I talked about it recently with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who is a Republican who was endorsed last year by former President Trump, and he told me it's one of the best tools states have to detect voter fraud. The little secret is that 10 years ago, if somebody voted in Ohio and Florida and Arizona and Texas, you would have never known. There was no way to catch that. And so with Eric, we can compare our voter rolls to those states. Okay, I'm trying to think this through. This addresses voter fraud. Republicans worry about voter fraud. So why would Republican aligned states, Florida, Missouri, West Virginia, pull out? So yesterday they all announced this and they said it was because there were a few different reasons, some data privacy concerns, some concerns that there were partisan influences on the organization. But as you mentioned, this is a thing that for the last 10 years, Republicans have loved. The Heritage Foundation, a prominent conservative think tank, has given points to states for joining it. And then last year, we saw far-right media start to target it. Blog posts, podcasts started coming out, trying to link this organization to George Soros, who's kind of the centerpiece of a lot of far-right conspiracy theorizing. Sure. And it kind of caught fire at the grassroots kind of conservative level, became a very prominent storyline in election denier circles. Louisiana becomes the first state. 
in the beginning of last year to pull out. Alabama follows suit earlier this year, and now we have three more conservative states following this wave. So if these states follow the dictation of the right-wing media, how are they going to keep their voter rolls up to date? That is the big question. I've talked to election officials and experts across the political spectrum and asked them straight away, can states do what they do with the ERIC data without ERIC? They say no. It's either impossible or would cost an exorbitant amount of money and time for a government to build. So almost certainly the states that have pulled out of ERIC over time will just have less accurate voter lists. So this is just the way that you would find out if somebody has moved from one state to another. You need to communicate with the other state. So what happens to ERIC now? This is clearly a major inflection point. There are a number of other conservative member states. We're going to see what happens here, whether it continues to evolve into what is essentially a political football. I will note yesterday, former President Trump in a social media post mentioned this once obscure voter list maintenance tool by name, which is probably not a good sign for the member states who are just crossing their fingers and hoping this all passes over. NPR's Miles Parks, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. The White House is considering whether to revive the practice of detaining migrant families caught crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally. That would be a major reversal for an administration that had largely stopped family detention on humanitarian grounds. But the administration is weighing the idea as part of a broader crackdown at the border. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration for NPR. Joel, what do we know about uh, these discussions? Yeah, the administration is considering holding migrant families in detention if they're caught crossing the border illegally. That's according to a source familiar with the matter. The source stressed that no final decisions have been made and also that this is one of several options under consideration and that any family detention would be brief. Clearly, you know, trying to distinguish this from the way that prior administrations have used family detention, particularly the Trump administration, which sought to hold families in detention for longer periods of time. All right, so let's go back for a moment. Why did the Biden administration stop family detention? Family detention is controversial because of the effect on children. Immigrant advocates and doctors say that even brief stays in detention can have serious effects on children's health. That's why there are strict rules around how long the government can hold migrant families in detention and under what conditions that are laid out in, in a long-running legal case known as the Flores Agreement. As a candidate, President Biden called for migrant families to be released from ICE detention during the pandemic. And his administration had been largely releasing migrant families into the U.S. instead of detaining them. But now it is considering bringing the practice back to detain families at least for short periods of time under the Flores Agreement while deciding whether to release or deport them. Yeah, and that would be a, a pretty big shift. Why are they considering it now? Well, for several months, the administration has been pushing to tighten restrictions at the southern border. The White House is planning for the end of the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42, which allow immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants at the border. Those are currently set to end on May 11th. And the Biden administration is very concerned about a possible jump in the number of border crossings at a time when it's already under pressure from Republicans who have criticized what they call Biden's open border policies. The Biden administration has already announced a proposed rule that would sharply limit who can apply for asylum at the border. And now it's looking into other ways to discourage migrants from crossing illegally and deter them from making the dangerous journey through Mexico in the first place. And it's giving consideration to ideas like family detention 
that would have been hard to imagine even a few months ago. So with the asylum limits uh, proposal and now this, I can imagine that immigrant advocates have some thoughts. Yeah, they are appalled that this is even under discussion. They argue that ending family detention is one of the things that the Biden administration had gotten right on immigration. Advocates are concerned that bringing family detention back could have unintended consequences, might actually encourage more families to send their children over the border alone because unaccompanied minors are treated differently and not expelled from the U.S. These self-separations, as advocates call them, are already happening, but advocates worry they could happen more once these new policies go into effect. And we should also note that there would be serious logistical challenges to getting uh, family detention off the ground by May 11th. Family detention centers are required to have things like classrooms and playgrounds. And the few facilities that were previously used for families have been converted to hold single adults now. So it would not be a simple matter to just, you know, turn them back into family detention centers. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration. Joel, thanks. You bet. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new installation at a Boston museum allows you to explore sound by interacting with your smartphone. In your forecast, we'll start out with some sun this morning, but high winds will bring clouds in throughout the day. And by afternoon, it should be partly overcast in the upper 30s and lower 40s. Tonight, overcast and in the low 30s. Tomorrow, more clouds than sun with high winds, and it'll be in the 40s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, workers at the Starbucks and Cleveland Circle are demanding the company replace their shifts following the outlet's sudden closure. The location closed last week because of a plumbing issue. Starbucks says the store will remain closed through late summer for renovations. Workers there tell the Boston Globe they feel the closure is meant to slow unionization efforts. Starbucks denies the claims. The Museum of Science Boston says a new partnership will help it bring interactive lessons to classrooms around the world. The free programs will be offered through the global learning platform Kahoot. The museum says they focus on science, technology, and math for students in grades 1 through 8. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark where you can begin your kitchen project by learning about Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances in interactive showrooms in Boston and Milford. More at clarkliving.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new exhibition at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design's Museum in Boston explores sound in new ways. It was created by Jace Clayton, an artist, DJ, and self-proclaimed sound chaser. His installation invites visitors to participate in some audio alchemy using their own smartphones. WBUR's Andrea Shea explains. Walk into the bright white upstairs gallery at the Mass Art Art Museum and you'll encounter 40 black speakers on 40 tall straw-colored wooden stands. Sound artist Jace Clayton arranged them in a wide circle. And then in the center of the circle defined by the speakers, there's a pedestal and two benches. His work, titled 40 Part Part, 
looks like a minimalist sculpture, but two thin cables poke out of the pedestal in the middle, and there's a Bluetooth button. These are Clayton's invitations for visitors to activate his piece with sounds or songs from their cell phones. Everyone has this world of sound at their fingertips. And so what if we can turn that, something which is ordinarily private, your own personal playlist, into something that's kind of broadcast in this space? And partially, I'm always just curious. I'm like, what are people listening to? (laughs) But this isn't just a listening party. When people connect and press play, Clayton's algorithms morph their selection into something new. And then they'll hear whatever they've chosen transformed and mutated and spatialized and spun around and all sorts of different things will happen. And it's always surprising. So I scroll through my phone. All right, let's see what you got for us. The Beach Boys. Sounds good. The sound will also kind of move around these 40 speakers in a circle in different ways. Like sometimes it will spin, sometimes it will freeze. But no audio of my own enters into the piece. It's only other people's sound gets processed. Making familiar sounds unfamiliar is one of Clayton's goals, in part because he says it taps into emotion and memory. He also wants to challenge assumptions about what can transpire in a museum. You know, museums are ordinarily places of quiet appreciation, talking small voices, whereas here, come in and play your sounds as loud as you like, you know, so it's kind of inverting the standard power dynamic. Let's imagine what a museum could be. That's Lisa Tung's job as MAM's executive and artistic director. Not just a space where you walk in and just see something on the wall and you can't interact other than by observing, which is also really wonderful, but to have an artist who really wants the public to come and take over his piece. Tung, a child of the 80s, tries it out with a tune by Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. I just love how it goes around in different ways, cutting it up and making this weird origami tapestry of some kind. Jace Clayton has been manipulating music technology for decades as a globe-trotting DJ, writer, and composer. He grew up in North Andover and started experimenting with turntables in the 90s. The main act of DJing, of course, there's all this technical stuff, but the main act is selecting. And so I think this kind of quietly asks the audience to do that. Like, what song do you want to present? Visitor Alex Bednar picks a song that's nostalgic for him. It's called Never Meant. It's by the band American Football from the late 90s. It's kind of echoes. It feels almost like going in and out of like a place or like like a realm or something like that. It's almost like the feeling of remembering a song and how a song associates with like a memory and it's a different way to hear something that I'm all too familiar with. Wow. (laughs) Wow. This is so weird. I love it though. Gabby Gale's song choice has a fitting title, Ghosts in the Machine by SZA. I think it's cool. I mean, we're in like this new age of remixes every single day on the internet. TikTok has them all the time. You mash and mix with songs, so it keeps you fresh. 
We'll do Lizzo too, why not? <laughs> Gail's reaction would be music to artist Jace Clayton's ears. I love contemporary art that actually like addresses what it means to be alive right in this moment. When technology and humans mix, Clayton believes they can make magic. He hopes visitors will feel that for themselves when they step inside his circle of speakers and press play. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the push to allow the White House to ban mobile apps like TikTok that are deemed security and privacy threats. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now. Deepa Fernandez is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Deepa. Good morning, Rupa. We have a lot on today's show. All the top news of the day from right around here, also around the world. And we're going to go to Florida, where the legislative session begins today. As we all know, Governor Ron DeSantis has both uh, the chambers in Republican hold. So he's hoping to pass some of his more extreme ideas. We'll get a check in there. We're also going to look at what it takes to get accurate news on the war into Russia And we're going to look at a problem that hits all of us who are parents, the fact that the school day finishes somewhere around two or three in the afternoon, but our workday doesn't. What are parents to do when after-school programming is such an afterthought? Those and many other stories all on Here and Now coming up today. Mm, Thanks, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's Here and Now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, existence behind the veil. Terrence Johnson's class at Harvard Divinity School uses spiritual ideas about black identity to unpack racism. He'll take us on this deep journey. It's Brilliant Boston on Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Low 40s and windy today under increasingly cloudy skies. Tonight we may fall into the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly overcast, windy, and in the low 40s. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 851. Could TikTok of China someday become illegal in America? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. There's legislation in the works to ban the rapid-fire video social media platform TikTok in the U.S., not just on government devices, but possibly someday everywhere. There's a bipartisan push in Congress to give the president new powers to ban mobile apps considered potential security or privacy threats. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The efforts in Congress come after President Trump's attempts in 2020 to ban TikTok and WeChat. Both were blocked by court rulings. Now lawmakers want to grant the White House powers to try again. 
Two U.S. senators, Democrat Mark Warner and Republican John Thune, are expected to introduce legislation today. Senator Warner spoke on Fox News Sunday. You got 100 million Americans on TikTok 90 minutes a day. They are taking data from Americans, not keeping it safe. But what worries me more with TikTok is that this can be a propaganda tool. Last week, the House Foreign Affairs Committee voted to advance a similar bill, one the American Civil Liberties Union has opposed on free speech grounds, saying it's too broad and can target many businesses. TikTok has said it has invested heavily in security to protect Americans' data and that it operates independently of China's government. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. The head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, begins testifying in Congress about the economy, jobs, and interest rates in just over half an hour here. Uh, S&P futures are up a tenth of a percent. Dow futures are up slightly. NASDAQ futures are up a quarter of a percent. On Friday, the February jobs report will give us a concrete reading of whether interest rates are working to quiet down inflation. By the way, Powell's testimony is in about an hour. Last year, the Biden administration appointed a commission to look at biases and the way the U.S. Department of Agriculture apportions its massive resources. That agency is responsible for federal lending and resource allocation to American farmers, among many other duties. The commission is out with its first equity report. Here's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. It's no secret that the USDA has an equity problem. The agency has owned up to a history of racial discrimination and settled class action lawsuits with black and indigenous farmers. The Equity Commission is part of a broader effort under the Biden administration to repair those relationships. And this initial set of 30 recommendations is what the group considers the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak. It includes frequent auditing of farm service agency lending programs, increased staff at the USDA's small office of tribal relations, and better quality services for farm workers who feel left behind by the agency. Meanwhile, the USDA is also considering how it will allocate over $2 billion in federal debt relief that was initially promised to farmers of color, but is now available to, quote, disadvantaged farmers of all races after the program faced lawsuits. The agency says that debt relief and the Equity Commission's final report will be out by the end of the year. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity helps investors understand who has the best relationship with their next investment. Affinity knows. Affinity.co slash marketplace. Now I want to look at how artificial intelligence of the chat GPT sort could put tech companies into some swampy legal ground if this technology can really create content that brings liability. My colleague Megan McCarty-Carino, host of our sister program, Marketplace Tech, has been digging into this. She joins us now. Hey, Megan. Hey, David. So what are you finding here? Concern that a company's weird little AI chatbot could land the company in legal hot water, legal liability, how? Right, so this kind of goes back to this ancient federal law from 1996, the Communications Decency Act, and specifically Section 230 of that law, which basically says, you know, internet platforms, they're not like traditional publishers, they're not creating content so much as hosting content that users create, so they can't be held liable for that content. But when we think about what these artificial intelligence chatbots are doing, you know, it starts to look a lot more like they're creating content. 
Yeah, I mean, they often call it generative AI. You know, exactly. generative, that word suggests it's, uh, you know, creating something. So that means, what, the tech companies could be held liable for something a chatbot were to spit out? That's the idea. We spoke to a tech policy expert, Matt Peralta, at the University of North Carolina, and he said, you know, it's a virtual certainty that some courts will see it that way. And so companies can expect lawsuits over anything these chatbots spit out that could potentially cause harm, you know, like, say, factual errors, which seem to be happening pretty frequently here. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine, for instance, if an AI libeled somebody if an AI-driven right. chatbot told the world that David Brancaccio is a known philatelist, which is patently untrue. One imagines lawyers are urging tech companies to minimize the risk. Right. I mean, you would think that companies are probably going to end up taking a more cautious approach once this gets going in the courts, limit the application of this technology to prevent anything, you know, that could conceivably cause harm. There are a lot of folks who would like to see that, you know, who see it as a good thing that these Internet companies be more liable for the harms they cause than they have been so far. But Matt Peralta at UNC has some concerns about an overly cautious approach that might hold back a lot of innovation that could ultimately really benefit society and kind of distort the marketplace so only the biggest companies with the most expensive lawyers have a shot here. All right, we'll see where this goes. Marketplace Tech's Megan McCarty-Carino, always good to talk to you. Same, David. Thanks. Philatelist is someone passionate about postage stamps, by the way. And last evening, the Biden administration blasted a big student loan company. SoFi is suing to stop the administration's pause on paying back student loans. The Department of Education said SoFi is putting borrowers at, quote, serious risk of financial harm. And that suit, SoFi had said the pause is hurting its profits. Repayments are set to resume either 60 days after a Supreme Court ruling on much of this or by the end of August, whichever comes first. Our producers are James Graham, Ali Delbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be cloudy, windy, and in the low 40s today, overcast and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, still windy, mostly cloudy, and in the low 40s, about the same on Thursday. It's 34 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. Just a couple years ago, Americans were saving money at one of the highest rates on record. Not anymore. Savings are dropping and credit card debt is rising. Sometimes it feels very, like, heavy, like crushing. You know, I'm going to have to pay this back. I have to pay this back. I'm Elsa Chang. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.